All right, folks, you know what time it is. It's time for an ad for Overcast. Overcast is an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls. Just a great podcast app for everyone. As always, you can get it for free on the App Store. Page in my rhyme book, page in my rhyme book, page in my page in my page in my rhyme book. Well, hello. How you doing? This is Ergo. That's what this is. I'm Kiss. I'm Damon. And we're going to have to find some more creative ways to start the show, I think. I think we, this has run its course. Uh, for, for today, we'll leave it at that. Uh, what we do here is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative. We are in the midst of our notebook suite, talking with writers and people who engage with writing about how they built their relationship to craft and the relationship between writing and radical imagination. How are you, Dame? I'm doing. I'm doing pretty good. You know, life is life is happening. We we are privileged to be talking to these amazing people. So, I'm carrying that spirit. But I'm I'm working a lot. So that sucks. How how you? I'm okay. I definitely agree with the the privilege of these conversations. I'm just in this year been feeling so appreciative for the show and and getting to have this time to just sit and chop it up with such brilliant people. And today is no exception. Our guest on this volume of The Notebook Suite is a return guest. We are so excited to welcome back to the show Hanif Abdurraqib. Hanif is a poet, essayist, and cultural critic from Columbus, Ohio. He has multiple books of poetry as well as music writing. His essays have been featured all over the place, and he's hosted a couple of great music-related podcasts, including Object of Sound, uh, which just started a few weeks ago which features incredible conversations with musicians. And it was such a joy to get to circle back to him and go a little bit more in-depth into his craft, as well as how he's making sense of this moment in time and history. Yeah, I really appreciated having some more time to, to chop it up and, and, and reconnect with Hanif. What I take away from the conversation, I probably should have told him this, <laughs> uh, is, is that you know he's really embodying this like new... Uh, presentation of cool that that is really like thoughtful and and humble and like you know a little bit more intimate and vulnerable. I had like kind of rejected the notion of the cool kid, uh, and he kind of like creates or is is part of a new lane of what it's like to be a cool person. So so definitely shout out to to the big homie for for coming back through and kicking it in the suite with us. So just like with all the other episodes in the suite, we ask our guests to share with us a writing prompt for you. Our prompt for this episode from Hanif is to, in prose or poetry, in verse, whatever, articulate a memory that you have from someone else's perspective. So something, maybe it's a story you've told many times, maybe it's something that you just have had on your mind as an experience, and just try to imagine and write the story. It could be first or third person, but from someone else in the story's perspective. It's something that I actually think he does really, really well in his writing is imagine the different perspectives in a story as well as be really honest and clear about his own perspective and relationship to his poetry and his craft. So without further ado, let's continue our notebook suite with the one and only Hanif Abdurraqib. Let's get it. We are so excited to be on the line with a, an old Ergo alum and someone I'm really excited to talk to in this context of writing and relationship to to words and letters and thoughts and, and sound. Folks, Hanif Abdurraqib is here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for having me again, y'all. Really good to be here. Yeah, of yeah. course. So, you know, we have our two-part question that we start the show with, but I haven't asked this in a while, and you seem like a good person to ask for this. If you could have any animal noise be your walk-up music, what would it be? Because we, we give the like crow slash hawk by default at this point. Yeah. Um, whatever noise giraffes make, which I think is a bit indecipherable, I was told, because of how high up they are. <laughs> uh, and so people... And so they, they probably make a noise, but I don't know what it is. I've never heard it. Thing. So. Yeah. And, but I, I, liked, I think that's, that serves me because i'm interested in sounds that perhaps have not worked their way into our imaginations yet and therefore can be anything you know um 
Like, I don't know what sound a giraffe makes and I don't really want to know. You know, like I, I'm fine not knowing. Do you have a, a sound you hope is the sound they make? <laughs> no, I mean, I hope they sing. I hope they're like, I hope they're, you know, like I hope that they're... It's like uh, an in vogue three-part harmony. Yeah, like I hope they have beautiful voices. <laughs> and some, somehow uh, the harmony is related to their respective heights. So like the tallest yeah, one has yeah. the highest voice and then they go down like that. Yeah. It's like a deep baritone in the shorter ones. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to hear a really endearing, cute, giraffe-based story from my childhood that I get more upset about the older I get? I would love to. All right. So the cute version is, I'm like, I don't know, n- nine years old or something. And like, I had a good quarter at school, like made the honor roll and was like a- able to go to uh, Disney World for my birthday. And so it was like a magical trip. It's, you know, it's literally the, the, the Magic Kingdom. Um, and they got to like the little animal thing. And so every time there's like some show where they like let a kid come on and I just had like birthday glow on me the whole trip. Or maybe I was just like the only black, like post-racial early 2000s person around. And so I would get picked for all of these like little, like we need a kid to come up here. And so I'm in the animal kingdom and like, we need five kids to like represent all the animals. I'm like, hell yeah. Um, and so they was like, all right, this kid's gonna do a lion. And this kid's going to do a monkey. And this kid's going to do like a dog. And they're like, and you do a giraffe. The joke was on me because like no one knows what a giraffe makes. And like they kind of embarrassed me in front of this whole room of well-traveled white people. So you uh, so you just sang The Temptations and, and moved on. <laughs> they told me it was yeah. like a goat. Uh, so it just did like a bear, which was really like, ah, oh, that's no. kind of anticlimactic. Yeah, yeah, that's not as pleasing. Yeah. Mm. Well, I'm glad that we created the space for that, Damon. I hope Thank it feels you. better Thank to you. get that off your chest. <laughs> and I think we can start where we start uh, every episode, which is in this time, however you define time, this hour, this moment, this season, this lifetime. Hanif, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? Well, the world is not treating me or anyone I love particularly well, but I, I do think that I am still encouraged and heartened to reciprocate wellness and goodness where I can because so much of the process for me is not acting in response to or reacting to the world at large, the capital W world, but instead reacting with care towards the smaller worlds I've built. So the world of this like Zoom call or whatever, the world of um, two nights ago, I like watched a movie virtually with a few friends and that was a world that i believed intending to in that moment and so um the world at large is not treating me well but uh, i think with any luck i'll continue to be the architect of smaller more generous and more thoughtful worlds that i I think that i can manage Mm. exactly there it is (laughs) um so for this suite um we we have a second kind of like warm-up question and so we've been asking this question of like the relationship between the practice and the process and the identity uh so most people you know write something write their name down you know write down something for work uh but most people do not see themselves as a writer and that's like a real weighted term for a lot of people can you recall the time in your life where there was a moment or a season uh where you went from writing as a practice as something you do to understanding yourself as a writer or is that a premise that you even uphold i don't think i uphold that because i think you know part of this is because i come from you know my mom wrote but was not a you know she worked on a book that never came out. You know, she like wrote on a typewriter after working her nine to five job. You know, she came home and would put in hours on a typewriter. And my mom was a writer. And so I think having an early understanding early on of being a writer is not determined by one's productivity or acclaim or entry points into any kind of establishment. It for me is just like uh, a person who turns to writing at any point to make sense of anything or to help themselves move through anything or to ignite or enliven anything. You know, it's just like, have you written a couple sentences that you, you feel good about a couple words in them, you know, like these kind of things. And some of that for me is because I just don't like this idea of being a capital W writer as something that should have a barrier to it. Um, now, does that mean I enjoy everything that's ever been committed to the page? Of course not. <laughs> but I'm not, I also am not trying to withdraw the ability for anyone to call themselves a writer. And I think that has less to do with personal preference and more to do with just my general 
you know, my organizing principle around art making. Mm. I mean, I came up around real DIY shit, you know? So it was like, you know, motherfuckers in bands who like couldn't really play that well, <laughs> but, but we're still in this band. I like, you know, right. anyway, my bad. No, no, no. Okay, so was here. But it's, it's to that point, you, as you just mentioned, like it's anathema to your organizing principle in your writing and how you approach the world. I don't usually ask people like, what's your mission statement, but you set that up. <laughs> like you have like a very clear idea of what this is and what you're trying to contribute. Uh, do you? I don't know if I have one that is explicit but i oftentimes think that i'm asking myself repeatedly how can i be the best steward of my own curiosities you know what i mean and how can i do it in a way that is generous and not selfish because i also came up something that i did not love like the the high fidelity reboot dropped right Mm -hmm. and something that i do not love about the high fidelity universe even though like obviously you know big fan of zoe kravitz but a thing I never loved about the entire High Fidelity universe is it positions Music Fandom as this exclusive, non-welcoming club mm. that can be wielded and weaponized, right? Like the, the the record store owner cliche of like, yeah, you don't know the real jams type of, yeah. And I know that that exists. I know that that vibe exists because I grew up as a music kid. So I grew up around those types. But more often than not, I grew up around people. I was just in my record, my, my neighborhood record store yesterday. And whenever I pop in there, the homie is like, yo, I got some shit you gotta hear. You know what I mean? It's that kind of thing where it's like, listen, and that's just the kind of vibe I grew up around. I have older siblings. I had three older siblings who love music. I came up around OGs who love music and it was never some shit like you don't know real music. Even when I was like in my like shiny suit era, you know, I never got looked down on. It was kind of like, oh shit, you like that? If you like this Mace album, let me hit you with something that you also might like. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so the 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 this condensing of that large idea is that I really want to continue a generosity that is inviting and understanding that my curiosities, I might be the best person who can articulate my curiosities in the way that I can, but through that articulation, I'm also reaching for people. You know, like I'm also asking people for responses and through those responses i think we build something better than these kind of like exclusive um silos of interest i just got such a pleasing image of you going to (laughs) a record store to buy a bass album in a shiny suit (laughs) i had the the exact same image in my head you said my shiny suit era like there was like 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 in like in 99 just like little hanif in like a ditty suit (laughs) i mean you know i was really fortunate in that i never i one know how it feels to love something and get told that the thing you love is stupid Mm. or not worthwhile Mm. but i also know the real generous and joyful feeling of having someone older specifically or someone who just like listens to music more than you do or as much as you do tell you like I see what you're listening to and I got something else for you that you might like. Mm-hmm. You know what yeah, I mean? Mm-hmm. Where it's like this kind of sonic, gentle editing of taste instead of just like harsh shutting down. And so I think I, I'm really trying to continue that legacy, you know, and and to, to, to meld my curiosities with the curiosities of others. And I think I'm speaking about music specifically because that is the easiest way for me to relate to this. But so often I want to love music. And I'm often asking people like, well, tell me what you hear. If I'm not hearing this well, tell me what you're hearing that you think is really making this song move. Because mm. I want to get there. Like, I want to be there with you. Mm. That's beautiful. I, I want to talk about that curiosity a little bit. Uh, one of the things that Nate had shared with us at the beginning of the suite for us to ask to our guests, and it's come up a few different times, is about kind of the radicality of curiosity and the danger that gets attached to that also, uh, depending on who's the one uh, being curious and, and some of the enforced potential for violence on especially a young black person, but I think black people in general for sharing that curiosity, whether that's cultural, whether that's sociopolitical. Professionally. Yeah. And, and I hear you talking about the commitment to kind of foster that curiosity communally um, in, in relationship. How do you... Uh, imagine that curiosity or or how does that idea connect to the the kind of radical potential and danger of that curiosity for you you know what's interesting to me is i i I tend to or i'm trying to think of curiosity as a borderless entity because the neighborhood i grew up in was bordered 
by and still is bordered by a fairly wealthy, extremely white suburb where I eventually went to college and had a terrible time. Um, <laughs> Shout out to so, all the terrible times in college. I, I, I feel like <laughs> I'm a leader of that brigade. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so I think all the time about how I was a kid, right? And I knew and I understood where I could not cross, like what I could not cross into. And what's so funny is I think people tend to think of the hood, capital T, capital H, the hood as this dangerous place. Mm -hmm. But everyone I grew up with was afraid of what was on the outside, Mm. was afraid of the uncontrolled, you know what I mean? We were afraid of the, the quote unquote nice neighborhoods. We were afraid of them suburbs, you know what I mean? Because that's an uncontrolled environment where we are not looked upon with love or care as we were within the borders of our neighborhoods. And so you get an eye. I know when shit's about to pop off where I'm from. I don't know what the fuck them, them white folks doing over there. You have me like, I don't know. And so I understood curiosity as something that had to be confined to the borders of my understanding Mm. just for my own safety. And I think in my work, in my writing, I feel like I can move outside of that. If I choose, I feel like I can operate a little more freely or the things I can explore and feel safe exploring that can happen in my work. But also to return to music, there are, and I don't pay this much mind anymore because it happens frequently and I just kind of, you know, whatever, whatever. But there are these like enforced borders, particularly when I'm talking about music that is like canon, right? Mm -hmm. Where um, I can't count the amount of emails I got from people who listen to Lost Notes always like genuinely always a white person. Mm on some shit like, well, how come you didn't talk about this? How come you didn't talk about this? Here's a here's a John Lennon thing. You didn't say, it's like, listen, I know, well, yeah, I know what I'm doing. You know, like, <laughs> you know, I know that you're maybe not used to like a younger black person talking about this shit that only older white people have talked about in your, in your experience, in your narrow lens. But like, I grew up with black people talking about the Beatles, you know? Right. I grew up with black people talking about Jefferson Airplane. I Like, so our lenses are just not the same. Because for a lot of these folks, it's like, why are you, you know, the last public reading I did was like in February or March of last year. And I wore this Almond Brothers, this vintage Almond Brothers sweatshirt. Um, and during the Q&A, this old white dude raised his hand and was like, is that an Almond Brothers sweatshirt? And I was like, yeah, fam. And he said, what's the deal with you wearing it? You know, <laughs> but, and I just, I was like, next question. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But, but it's because like, People cannot fathom. We're talking about borders again, right? Within the borders of their own imagination, there are people who cannot fathom a world where Black folks at all, but particularly Black folks like within my age range, are listening to this shit. But like, that's all I knew. All I knew growing up was was that. Yeah, the like cognitive dissonance of like forcing a dominant culture on everyone and then being surprised when people have encountered it is like this really yeah. it's like you <laughs> it's played wild. this shit on the radio all the time and of course there's variety yeah. of that but the yeah i think it's a it's like a limit of imagining for sure of like that you would be part of that public that would have encountered that work you know or that me or like anyone else who is in my operating as i operate uh is entitled to speak on it too mm-hmm. like that's the other thing is that like there are folks who are like, well, you're entitled to consume this, but I feel less good about you speaking on it, especially because I think some folks are like, well, I should be speaking on it because I've earned that or whatever. And I don't think of myself, I think another thing about, since we're talking about the pursuit of curiosity, it serves me to not think of myself as an expert, which I think is important for me. I think that I'm seeking along with side a lot of people. Now, there are things I know a lot about but I'm not at the ground floor of a lot of these things. And so I can't consider myself an expert. I'm not even an expert on myself. Yeah. And I am on, I am in on the ground floor of myself. <laughs> You've you done your research. <laughs> I, really, yeah. I really love that notion of like the rejection of expertise um, as this organizing principle of craft. And I want to take that like down to the page of when you have to struggle with that, right? Because that is almost counter to the history of literacy, right? Like when we open up a book or when you, you know, read a review, um, there is this assumption of authority and expertise. And so I want to go to like the moment of the sentence of like making a claim that is convincing or that you're grounded in. Um, what What is the distinction of how you approach the language to like 
challenge and complicate some of these expectations of, of expertise? I think it's a matter of tone and a matter of awareness of a speaker or awareness of a reader, right? Ross Gay does this so well in his poems where you're like reading a Ross Gay poem and he turns the address to you, reader, or he turns the address to, it's he's like facing you. And through that facing, the veil comes down and you're actually having a conversation or it feels as though you're having a conversation. I think I try to be really good at my work of being not only self-aware, but reader aware. And through that, being very clear and saying, this is how I experience this. And I'm understanding that there are a lot of different ways to experience a lot of different things, but this is how this moved through me. Um, there are some things that feel like interpretation, beautiful and glorious interpretation of fact, right? Like um, in A Little Devil in America, there's this really long piece about Aretha Franklin and about Amazing Grace. Um, or there's two pieces about Aretha Franklin, but they're braided together. And one is about Amazing Grace. And I don't really have to do much. I don't know if either of y'all seen Amazing Grace, but it is just stunning. I mean, I've seen it like five times. I don't have to do much other than like articulate the beauty of the facts of that archive, right? Yeah. Like here's what this looked like. And I want you to go see it. That's the other thing too, right? Is that I try to position myself as a fan by speaking as a fan to fans. To being like, yo, I love this and I would love to share my interpretation of it with you so that you might love it in a similar way or so that you might go seek it or reseek it and have a different kind of affection for it, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's better to me than being like, here's what you should listen to. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really effective. How I'm 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 curious in the balance of that. How much of that like audience imagination that you're doing in crafting is figurative versus like communal? Like how much of it is this like audience reader avatar that you are kind of creating as like a character that you're having conversation with? And how much of it is like, no, I actually know and talk to people and like I'm thinking about the actual physical readers or people I engage with on Twitter or from my like general social life. It's it's 50-50 in a way. I mean, the thing about me is that, so I'm, I, I'm the youngest of four. That means a lot of things, but one thing it meant for me most potently that I remember that sits in my memory really <laughs> intensely is that I was the last of my siblings to get a car, <laughs> which meant that by the time I got a car, I had really no one to drive around in, mm -hmm. you know? And so the interesting thing for me is that I spent most of my formative years in my older siblings' cars or my parents' cars listening to what they wanted to listen to and not having any access. I mean, rightfully, right? I'm not like, I know the rules, right? Like <laughs> not having any access to- We're for a democracy, um, but there's limits. The, the, the cars yeah, say, yeah. Like, you know, they picked the soundtrack. And there is an expertise I, in this station wagon. <laughs> like I am the expert yeah, of this right. station wagon. <laughs> and so I was like, cool, that's the move, I, you know? But by the time I got a car, I remember wanting so desperately to drive my family around or my friends, like people around just because I could curate the experience, right? As the experience had been curated for me for so many years. And I never got that opportunity. And so in some way, the person I am imagining is that like 16, 17 year old version of myself who would drive around alone through the city at night just so I could listen to music in my car and have control over that experience. But there is also a part of me who is always talking through this stuff with people. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm talking through music with friends, with strangers, you know, Twitter is a bit less, it's for me, like no longer an ideal platform to talk about much of anything. Uh, but like music, especially not in some ways, which is actually a bit of a bummer because I, there was a point where for me, Twitter pivoted to like not being ideal for a very specific set of things. But I was like, oh, there's still some like really good music conversations I'm having on here. And now I feel like even that's kind of a bit dodgy, but I try to be really good at, um, hearing from people if i utilize like the instagram function where you can like ask people questions or get asked questions i'm always like yo tell me some shit like tell me a very specific type of song you're interested in because i really like thinking through or fostering a community where we collectively even as strangers think through and talk about tunes especially now when i feel like a lot of people are not talking to folks as often as they might have otherwise yeah you mentioned that that drive around by yourself just to listen to music. 
And I do remember like the the freedom of that once you first have a car. And I've kind of come back to it a bunch in this time of isolation oh, of yeah. just like variety of seeing things and movement in a way that's safe. Have you been have you been doing any Columbus drive arounds with some music playing? Yeah, I drove I did last night. So I read every day and then I used to kind of take some walks. Um, but I, I'm also just like not in love with the cold. And so I haven't been taking <laughs> as many walks as I used to, um, in lieu of walks. Sometimes I've been driving and, you know, like yesterday I hit the record store and then I was kind of like, I don't really want to go home yet, you know? So I just drove around for a bit and that has been kind of freeing for me in a way. Mm. Is there a particular route the same way, you know, so like here you have the Lakeshore test where like you put on an album and you drive yeah. on Lakeshore and if it like melds with the sunlight, then you know that the album's right. Is there a similar route for you? Yeah. You know, what's funny is I heard about the, who first told me about the Lakeshore test? It was some like a Chicago, it was maybe DJ Ferris or someone <laughs> who like explained that to me. DJ Ferris. Chicago nigga. <laughs> a while back um a DJ and i was Ferris like pool, that's what's up <laughs> shout out dj Fer- like shout out dj Ferris. yeah shout out dj Ferris for real do you think i'll get um, sued if i put his sound drop in right after you said that <laughs> no, he's for it <laughs> in, in columbus i have my own route so there's a big circular highway called 270 that runs all the way around the city and it just like loops driving the whole thing is a bit much it's very long um, but it's a big circle. And I sometimes just drive like the half circle and then circle back around and go home. But what I love, you know, the big street in Columbus. Have you all ever been to Columbus? No. Probably the biggest street in Columbus is High Street because High Street crosses through like the south side, through downtown, through campus, and then like far, far north, like far north Columbus. So it's like the south, the big south north street. Sometimes I hit it, you know, a campus got to be dead. Like I do it when the school is out. Cause I'm not fucking with like, you know, kids in the crosswalks and all that. And so I usually hit it, you know, and I'll hit like my donut spot is on, on campus. And if campus is dead, I'll hit the donut spot. And that's a big one. You know, I, I I'm from the East side and I live on the East side now. And, um, it's been good, but I, I, I love that North South drive or that South North drive. You know, if you get back downtown in time, you can kind of see the sun setting over the riverfront and that's pretty dope. Mm. I want to stay in this like car music moment for for one second, because I think it's significant to your work because so much of your literacy has obviously been shaped and defined as a music listener and receiver. Um, And so that moment of like, I know I'm about to get my car. I'm like curating my playlist in my head or like the first song I'm going to play when you were about to get your permit or you knew the car was coming, like what was the song that you really wanted to play and bump and what was your reality? Because for me, graduation for Kanye came out on my 15th birthday and I was able to get my license on my 16th birthday. So my sister got me the CD and I was with my mom in the car and like Good Morning came on. Mm. And I remember those drums. I was like, when I get a car, I am bumping this shit. (laughs) And then it was that and then just basically all of like Lil Wayne's LimeWire discography. Mm -hmm. So, so, So what did you imagine and what was your reality when you finally got the steering wheel in your hand? So I got my car in 2001, but I remember really loving... You know, this was like in the Napster era, in the beginning of the Napster era. One of the first albums I remember I pulled in 2000 was the, the Rock La Familia album. Mm. It's Dynasty, it's niggas. Dynasty, niggas. As promised. As promised. The world's most infamous. Rockefeller records. And I remember wanting, always wanted to play that Dynasty intro in the car, which was oh. an, a, an, a great... A, like great early just blaze beat yeah. by the way oh yeah um like one of one of his best beats i think and it just came so early although i think he kind of like i think when he produces for jay-z he really like flips a different switch um like he's an elite producer but like i feel like the stuff for jay-z is just like uh singular mm-hmm. um so i really wanted that that dynasty rock la familia intro but i think something had happened where uh, I had it on a mix and I was bad, always bad at labeling my CDs until, you know, I got a little older. And so I had just like a bunch of clear blank CDs. <laughs> um, and so I think the actual first song that played in my car was some shit like a Fleetwood Mac song, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, 
or like James Taylor or something like <laughs> that I had put on another mix that I didn't label. Um, but I eventually did. You know, I had a, I got like a car stereo system. It was like one of the first purchases I got. I intentionally, I think, spent like a little less on my car. So I would have a little money left over to to get speak. Even my car like wasn't nice. Classic you know, dilemma cars. there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do I, do I want a car that'll run or I'll be able to listen to music in it? Yeah. Yeah. I picked the music for sure. My car was a mess. Uh, it eventually got stolen. Actually, I wrote an essay about this. Speaking of 270, um, a wild ass story is that my car in 2005 got stolen. And this is dark, dark turn. The person who stole it died in it mm. um, because he got he got into a police chase. And I think he thought he could get out of town by getting on 270, but you can't really get out of town. Because it loops. Um, <laughs> wow. It loops. Oof. And so he was just on a, on a chase on 270, and he kind of, the car, like, flipped over. Uh, and ro- it was pretty rough. Wow. And there was this wild-ass situation where I remember, this is dark. I That's- hope that people are okay with it. <laughs> um, but I had, I had like, my soccer cleats in the car. We found the Volta of the podcast, by the way. We just, like, there, there's our little, <laughs> little switch. I had to like go down to the uh, police station and they're like, do you want these cleats back? And they were like in pretty rough shape. They're like covered in blood and whatnot. And I was like, listen, I'm good, fam. Like, you know, thank you, I guess, for retrieving these. But yeah. Wow. So that is the story of my the demise of my first car. Wow. Damn. That is that is such an interesting story. I, I I have jokes and like I don't I don't want to joke. <laughs> but it also sounds like it sounds like a story for a for an essay about something. There is one. Yeah. There is an essay about this. Yeah. I wrote an essay about this. Yeah. It's uh people love it. I never read it, but I think it's like one of the more beloved pieces of writing <laughs> I've ever written. People are people like get parts of it tattooed on them and then send me the tattoos. Shout out to that. Let's talk about that. Uh, Let's talk about that. Like, not even just in this piece, but, you know, we're having this conversation about writing and its impact and the practice and, and process. And the first time that happened, and I don't know how many other times that <laughs> happened, like, like, really walk us through the words that I crafted together were so impactful that someone is going to permit. Like, this isn't a hit song, right? Like, that's, right. that's a yeah. very unique impact for, or even a poem for an essay to be tatted on someone. Talk, talk me through how you received that. Oh, it's, I mean, you know, it's always gratitude. It's not anything I ever think about, though, you know? Like, I. You lying. I, <laughs> no, I mean, really, I, have, I always have a lot of gratitude. I think maybe the first time it happened, I was, I don't even want to say put off because that sounds rude, but I was kind of like, why would anyone do this? Mm-hmm. But that's not, it was not an indictment on them, mm-hmm. right? It was more of like a self indictment. Like, why would anyone, like, my process is so much like, well, I wrote this on a, like, with my laptop on my, on a desk in a hotel room alone, eating, like, a Snickers bar for dinner. So that's weird. <laughs> um, but I think I, I tend to have a lot of gratitude for my work resonating with anyone to any level, you know, be it the person who tattoos a line or a person who just like hits me up and says that it, the work moved them. I kind of make myself somewhat accessible. I'm not good at replying to DMs like at all. <laughs> so if you DM me, I probably won't reply, but on my website, I keep the email where people can like use my contact form that like hits me. And I, I know that some other writers are like, no, 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 no one's reaching out to me on that. And I feel that truly. Um, especially cause like, I think writers who are maybe not straight cisgender men probably get some wilder shit mm-hmm. thrown out. You know what I mean? Then I get, and I'm not saying that everything I get is cool, but most stuff I get is cool. And I want to keep that point of access open because I really do believe in a, if I'm sharing the work, thinking about communal curiosity, I really want to leave avenues open for that community to kind of pull back into me or echo back towards me. And I don't want to close that off, you know, like I don't want to turn people away from that. Mm. Yeah. And it goes to kind of what we were saying before about like the ethos of that communal learning and criticism. And it reminds me so much of what uh, Elizabeth Mendez Berry was talking about of like, if we can have our ways that we interact with art and especially around critique, like be less like this artist versus this critic and have it be like, we're all communally doing that work together and that it involves like the other listeners and other artists. And that like, there's a circle here as opposed to this like one line thing. But I, I want to go to something that 
is true about your writing that is part of what's so resonant about it to me. And I don't really know how you do it. And so here's my like, uh, like, you know, behind the music moment, your like last lines, and I'm sure you get asked about this, but whether it's essays or poems, your endings create this like, um, almost like suspended in midair feeling for me. I don't even really know how to describe it better than that, but there's, there's always this, and sometimes you do it through litany of of kind of building the momentum. And then you kind of like, it's like in, um, Roadrunner, where Wiley Coyote will like reach the cliff and then he's just kind of suspended in the air there. For yeah, a second he's like running, he he's still running, even though there's no cliff below. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but I'm curious for you, how do you think about the last lines of a piece or a poem? And is there like a particular approach to that? Because as an as someone enjoying your work, that's always where I'm like, oh my god, this either wrecks me or just has me in this like yeah rarefied air. Yeah. Um. I think I owe a great deal to my roots in slam Mm. in that regard. Everything I learned about arc, like sonically and emotionally, I really learned through that window of time that I was in slam. I feel like my peers at the time were just really like masters of the craft, you know, like Denez and Sam and Franny, uh, Cam Awkward Rich is someone I really like just is brilliant the list goes on and on and on, you know, like Bobby Crawford out of Boston was someone I loved. And I, I really watched and studied these people, you know, like at the time I would go and do features at, you know, like my early performances were all like features at poetry slams across the country. And sometimes, you know, if you feature at one of these spots, you know, you feature before the slam and then the features would be like, all right, I'm out. You know, like I, I did my thing. Y'all have your slam. I'm going to leave because, like, why am I going to watch a slam in this city I don't live in? But I would always stay and I would always, like, really intensely and eagerly watch because I was learning and I'm not a great performer. And so for me, a narrative arc has to do the performance, mm. the surprise that can be provided through an, an endpoint has to be the performance. And so I think really heavily about how I sign off, how I exit. I think a lot about how I don't believe that in the writing, in my writing at least, the exit should be comfortable. I really believe in kind of firm removal. Um, Removal with gratitude, but removal that says we've had our time together and you're welcome to return to this if you'd like, but we're done here. You've got to understand (laughs) that we're done here, right? And, and And it's sometimes like not neat, you know? Sometimes you're just done and you're done. And that's it. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear you say that because I'm thinking about the way that you study music across timeline. And I've had this, Damon and I, we've, we've talked about this before, but the prevalence at a certain era of really amazing music where they didn't know how to end it or the ending was just, it would fade out. There are like a lot of iconic songs that I love and that are like, you know, in the quote canon that they just didn't figure out an ending and nobody really does that anymore. Yeah, is there like you think a, a potential to that just like fade out, or, or why do you th- like what? What do you think that was? Honestly, can, can I can I shout out one of my favorite fade outs? As, yeah, what's as your you favorite fade that out? question? So one of my favorite R and B songs is uh, Drew Hill. Uh, Beauty is her name, and I think oh, yeah. I think Cisco because because he's such a like character and like figure his like vocal performances and your cruise buddy and and my friend uh shout out to the homie cisco uh, <laughs> i think because he's, wait cisco's your friend for real i got to hang out with him on a cruise rather significantly like got to have dinner and, like walk around and see all of the like pacific asian uh staff yeah. like really freak like he's still cisco over there like, that, <laughs> <laughs> did is... you did you like win a prize or was he just on a cruise no no my, my dad's a comedian um and so he was an, an, also a performer has known his manager the manager for drew hill for a while and so we were on a cruise ship and they came and then they were there once you perform like if we're not docking you have to like stay a little bit longer so he was on a ship and like i was of one of the families that he knew. And, and then like my stepsister was kind of so like- they were just like on the deck kicking, kicking it. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's great. I mean, I could just talk about that forever. Like he still dyes his hair, but he wears hats. So like- <laughs> Got to, got to. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's like, it's there. And like, as he's on stage, he'll just do like a little tip of the hat oh, to let you know Cisco was there. Know. He has a costume yeah. dragon chain. And I saw the show twice. And like two thirds through the set, he literally unleashes the dragon. 
still and you had no idea that it was there the whole time so like yeah cisco is a pure cisco form but in beauty is her name and i'm sorry i went too no, far it's great <laughs> in beauty is her name he is such a like run 90s like ooh, vocalist yeah that like the song does not stop like he is still you got to get some of these new age like headphones like he is still through the fade out singing new ad libs he just for ran out of ran out of the studio he's <laughs> still going yeah he's singing out i but I, I also think about god only knows by the beach boys and how i think maybe it's something i heard during the pet sound sessions or maybe something brian wilson said at another time where that fade out is important there it serves it's also it's a craft point right mm. because it's asking a listener to imagine that the song is never ending right that central concern of the song which isn't even really a question it's more of like an exclamation right of like god only knows what i'd be without you which is just so tender and brilliant like the idea that it fades out because it's just understanding that that concern exists in perpetuity which is really romantic in a way Mm -hmm. and so i think the fade out can happen as a craft point um Sometimes, yes, it's just like we're bailing because we don't know what else to do. But I do think that it it, it can function in a way um, as something that embeds itself in the memory. Uh, you know, like when I think of God Only Knows, I always think of the end first. Because it ends and it fades out while still swelling. Mm, you know, much like mm-hmm. Cisco's runs, right? It fades out. It fades out while you're still kind of ascending the mountain. And when it finally fades out for good, it's not like you're at the top of the mountain. It still feels like you're ascending. Mm. Yeah. I think of God only knows first always because I think that is a fade out that was that feels really vital. Mm. I want to jump back to something you said about performance for you and, and understanding that the the arc and the functions of, of your narrative or what formed the performance. One, how did you realize that? Uh, and two, are there performers who either are poets or not, or musicians or other types of performance who you kind of learned that from, that that's a viable way to do it? Yeah, well, I come from a a family of storytellers and I come from a neighborhood of storytellers and I I came up around hustlers and I came up around folks whose reliance on storytelling uh, was sometimes the difference between the lights being on and not. And I say that because like, a hustler is also a storyteller, <laughs> right? And their storytelling is urgent. Mm. And I don't mean, I mean, I mean, hustler, hustler. I don't mean like, I do want to be clear on this because I'm not trying to like denigrate folks who are like unsheltered or folks who are, I'm talking about like people whose profession is hustling. I'm talking about like the CD man, you know what I mean? The person who got the watches, that kind of shit, that type of shit. If you grew up around him, you know him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're storytellers too. And their storytelling has to exist in a brief window because it has to hook you or they lose you. The person who, for example, works at a kiosk in the mall and knows that if you make eye contact with them, they can talk to you for at least 30 seconds. And if they get you for that 30 seconds, they can get you for 30 more. And if they get you for 30 more, you might stick around for a whole minute. And then what? You know? And that's kind of what I came up around. If I do have an MFA at all, it's it's in that it's from those folks, right? Have an MFA um, in kiosks, yeah, right. Like from just like witnessing, witnessing not only storytellers but hustlers who knew that their ability as orators depended on whether or not they got they got paid, mm-hmm. depending on whether or not what's lying in your pockets could be soon lying in their pockets, and so that is where I got that understanding from, and I think that's where I maintain that that understanding. Um, because to enact a sports metaphor, um, I think all the time about how quarterbacks have a clock in their head, right? They know they got to get rid of the ball. They got to get the ball out of their hands at a certain time or else they're going to get hit. I think as a writer, particularly as an essayist, I think about this. I think about like, how long can I build this scaffolding around something that is maybe interesting to me, but might be elusive to the interests of someone else? And how long can I do that and, and get someone, convince someone to trust me and continually trust me before I get the ball out of my hand and move on to something greater? Mm. I, I love that reference or, or that homage to the street hustle. And in that, I hear a level of like exchange or even even commerce. So I'm curious, what are you like selling? <laughs> if, if that is <laughs> like the, you know, what you're evoking, like that that storytelling or that hustle or that hook is, is service, not yeah. it's not just for something it is to have this 
this exchange? W- what is it that you are trying to get off and receive back? I think I'm I'm trying to sell people always on the idea of closeness, mm. of intimacy, right? Um, because once I think I unlock that door, then it's like I can get you to believe that this song means more to me. Because I think on its face, so much of the stuff that I'm passionate about, many people, myself included, would look out on the surface and shrug and say, that's not that serious. <laughs> because <laughs> truthfully, it's not, you know? Um, yeah. But if I could sell people on this idea of the many possibilities that can be unlocked by several layers of intimacy, and if I could just get them to buy into one layer, you know, I'm like the kiosk person. Instead of seconds, though, we're talking layers of closeness. Mm. I can get you to buy into one. I'm, I could maybe get you to buy into that second one. And then with enough language, I can maybe get you to buy into that third one. And now we're listening to this song differently. We're watching this movie differently. I'm doing this thing for the Paris Review that's like notes on hoops. It's just about basketball movies. And the first one I wrote was about love and basketball. And I could have taken that in a lot of different directions. But I, the the thing that draws me to that movie still is the intimacy of the one-on-one scene and not necessarily the last one-on-one scene right but the one there's that scene where like monica is in college Mm -hmm. and she's like playing against her rival and the camera has all these slow motion up close shots of her and her rival like grabbing at each other's jerseys or like pulling at each other's shorts or like that is it's affection in a way right that is what interests me but i cannot enter with that I have to enter with something else to get people to buy in before I sell them on the idea of that scene speaking to a larger concept. Mm. How old were you when you realized Q ain't shit? <laughs> you know, I think I think maybe this year yeah. when I rewatched, or I guess like, like last the year. Last I re- two years for me too. <laughs> I like rewatched it in the last couple of years. It's like, ah, he's pretty awful. And also the weird thing about it, I mean, this is like a whole other thing, but rom-coms are so formulaic and they... You know, it's the weird thing about love and basketball is that the central fissure in their relationship feels like it could have just been like talked out (laughs) very easily. It makes no sense. Like one one conversation. And I get that like I get that the fissure needed to exist in order for us to move forward. But it felt like that we could have just had one not even a high stakes conversation. Yeah. Like one not one fight, one conversation. (laughs) (laughs) One like medium stakes conversation. could have really solved the entire thing (laughs) because it was just like yeah it was so puzzling to rewatch love and basketball come to that conclusion i was like oh wait a minute like because i hadn't seen it in years and i remembered that i was like they broke up over like some real serious shit and i watched it i was like oh they could have just maybe had a little phone call (laughs) you know like yeah this is just a story that wouldn't exist with cell phones (laughs) which is honestly most movies and tv from before the era of cell phones you're like one conversation you could have texted where you were like every seinfeld episode could just be a text i was gonna say you drop a cell phone in a seinfeld and the whole the whole plot line dissolves in every episode because for those who aren't familiar with love and basketball i won't tell the whole story but the point we're making is like the central climax or when the love becomes fraught is (laughs) His, he finds out his dad has been like cheating on his mom or like he comes to grips with his dad was like a, ba- a famous basketball player and also a sleazebag. And he's like really emotionally distraught by it. But she has a, a team enforced curfew and she's trying to like uphold her responsibilities. And then he just like torpedoes the relationship because she had a curfew and couldn't come outside her dorm to have this conversation. Which, long time. Honestly, I will say this. My senior year of high school, I was in a relationship with someone who I liked a lot and we went off to college and we were like, we're going to stay in this relationship. Mm -hmm. And she, you know, I went to Capitol here in Columbus and she went to Denison, which is in Ohio, but is like, you know, 35, 40 minutes outside of Columbus. And like halfway through our first semester of college, we were like, the distance is untenable. Like Mm -hmm. we just cannot, you know, like we, this is impossible. How are we going to ever make this? We were like legitimately 30 minutes away from (laughs) each other. It was like, And it's like, oh, I don't think, you know, 30 minutes on like a good traffic day. Yeah. And it's like, I don't think we can make this work. It's There's an ocean between us, you know. But I've said for a long time, proximity is key. And even within the same city, the idea of being in a relationship with someone where you have to commute to them 
is somewhat untenable, I think. Like, <laughs> I think I, I lived in a neighborhood for far longer than I thought I would because my girlfriend lived there. The rent, the rent wow. wasn't cheaper there, but I wanted, I was like, I'm not going to spend my life driving 35 minutes to this person. You know, My life? Why did I, <laughs> this feels like some immensely Chicago type shit or like a city that has, because uh, Chicago is sprawling. Yeah, in a lot of ways, or maybe we just and like our just girlfriends like, more than you did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it could be that because I feel like Columbus, you can get almost anywhere in 15 minutes. Like you can get to the farthest reaches of the city in 15 minutes, and so like everyone is like five to 20 minutes max away from each other. Chicago is not the case. I know Chicago, it's like it's just a sprawling city, and so it takes a longer time to get to people. And I grew up in this corner of the Bronx that was so isolated from like I never dated someone who didn't live uptown. I just realized that like my brother was in a long-term relationship with someone who lived in Brooklyn and I watched my brother spend just an hour and a half each way on the train. And I was like, this is, this is not the future that I'm trying to build here. <laughs> like we gotta, you gotta live uptown. <laughs> I have, I have homies in New York who like are like, yo, to see my partner, it's sometimes like a two hour commute each way. You could drive to and Philly. Like, I can, yeah. <laughs> I can get to Cleveland. You know what I mean? Like I can be, <laughs> I could be dating someone in Cleveland. I can get to Cleveland with like one stop <laughs> in, in two hours. You know, yeah. I can stop at Grandpa's Cheese Barn yeah. along the way. You know, like, I can show up with cards in the time it takes for you to you find me. Like, <laughs> move the fuck out of New York. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting because it's not even just about time and like uh, an absolute number sense. It's about like place. That's what I hear from like that Columbus example of like. It might only take 30 minutes, but I feel like I'm in a different place. Like, that yeah. is doing a something. A different place entirely. Yeah. 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 I can't. And I, I mean, to be fair, I would like to, I have grown since then. I have been, <laughs> I have been in, in now multiple long distance relationships mm -hmm. that I have handled with like, significantly more maturity, I believe. Um, but, you know, when you're like 18, yeah. it's not the same. Absolutely. All right, I have a couple things that I want to hit on. Um, one actually is very Columbus related, and it's also a little temporal. So, you know, we've spent the last eight months on the show building these suites, and this kind of came out of this reflective moment of trying to understand what would be a useful contribution in the midst of uprising and in just in the midst of this very challenging time. And one of the things that I've really... I wouldn't say enjoyed, but watched very closely and paid a lot of attention to because I think it's something that I'm not really hearing anywhere else is just your personal accounting of what the last nine months have looked like in the town of Columbus or in the city of Columbus. Pardon me. Um, yeah. Yeah. In the village, in the village of Columbus <laughs> and, and the, the fraught, very specific relationships to power and policing and the mayor and, and all these dynamics that exist there that are in relation to other places, but, but are unique to there. And I'm curious whether that was an intentional choice for you or just you talking back to, to what was happening around you. Was there a sense of like people who aren't here need to know what this moment looks like in a place like Columbus too? Not really. I mean, I, I'm someone who like organized before I wrote, you know, before, not before I wrote anything worthwhile, but before I wrote at all. And there are organizers here on the ground who, by virtue of having more time, more experience, more capability, are have been doing greater work than I've been doing and continue to. And so much of my role is just supporting them. But I also think because, for whatever reason, I'm a person here who people listen to, mm. um, it feels important for me sometimes to like very plainly just be like, yo, I'm not with the shit, you know, because I do think this thing happens where, uh, because Columbus isn't a New York or a Chicago or an LA, the people who quote unquote make it or who have some measure of success and who then are like upheld by the city in some way are encouraged to kind of go along with the, the movements of the city at all costs. So, for example, right, I'm a graduate of Columbus City Schools, very proud of that. Columbus City Schools at one point was also very proud of that. Um, <laughs> it would also be like, it would be like, you know, this guy, you know, he graduated one of ours, one of ours, one of ours. Um, and this movement began to get cops out of, out of Columbus City Schools. And I was like, yo, I'm with it. And, and I, it was important for me to be like, I'm going to address Columbus City Schools and let them know. 
Like I am proud of being a graduate of these institutions, but a lot of it was in spite of the resources and in spite of the violences that were present in the school. And y'all have to know that. And so now I feel like they're less proud. Um, but I, I think I, I kind of carry that through. Like the mayor, the mayor fucking sucks. You know what I mean? Like maybe there's some privilege in the fact that I don't really have anything here to lose. Mm. And even if I did, I would still be with the people, you know, like I, I'm with the, I'm with the people. And that's just what I am. I'm kind of only reflecting what I am understanding from standing in solidarity with the people. And this was what I would be on if I was still working like in the mall selling shoes, you know, because the fact that I've written a couple books or whatever, whatever does not change. That might change some material circumstances of my life, but it doesn't change where I'm from, what I've seen, what I understand, like what I know, I know. I don't want to squander that. I don't want to squander knowing what I know because there is so much that I don't know that like if I know, I know some shit. Um, particularly about this place that I love and that I want to see be better than it is, then I got a responsibility, you know? Yeah. And, and that feels important to me. It feels important to me to not be like, this is a great, one, I love Columbus and I think it is a, a city that I adore and think is wonderful. But it's important for me to kind of uh, reframe my my like enthusiasm and not just kind of be like, best city in the world. And more be like, how can I make this city I love more equitable so that everyone at least has the opportunity to love it in a similar way that I do. I'm, I'm really intrigued um, in terms of the approach and process and how this differs from like all of the other type of writing we've talked about so far. So some language I've heard you say was responsibility, knowing what you know, and I think you said not being with the bullshit or something, right? Like as a very, <laughs> yeah. a very explicit, yeah. um, project you were engaging as this transformative time was happening and like a real sense of responsibility that I think you're hearing to, to name things. How does that differ or compare to when you are approaching the page to talk about a song or a cultural historical reference? Um, is there differences in how you outline and construct? Is there is there difference in tone or is it all the same kind of like flow and process for you um, in terms of, of how you construct this voice? Gosh, I feel like it all feels the same because I'm so interested in truth that aligns with historical analysis in some way or cultural analysis that can maybe lean a little on the political or the historical. Um, yeah, I feel like I take a similar approach all the way through. Mm. I love that it's not the the main intention, but it, it has been really helpful, you know, just for me, but I think also for a lot of people. And, and what I tried to convey a lot through the story is that there's nowhere that isn't in the middle of this story and in the middle yeah. of this fight. And, and I think just because of the way that power crafts narrative, there's this idea of, well, this happens there and in these places that we don't even have the imagination because we have an experience to know what it looks like, that there there is nowhere that's on the outside of this. And, and that's at least for me, part of what I thought was helpful about seeing the moment reflected through your eyes in the yeah. town of Columbus. I mean, Columbus police killed, at the end of last year, Columbus police killed two black men in less than 10 days. You know what I mean? It's fascinating to me, the mayor here, uh, last week, or I guess this weekend, like as literal tanks were rolling into town, you know, got up behind a podium talking some shit like this is not who we are. And it's like, no, 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 fam. This is who y'all were like four months ago. <laughs> there were tanks and there were tanks downtown four months ago. When you say this is not who we are, who's the we? What is the R? What the fuck are you talking about? You know what I mean? Like, and what's the this? What's the this? Yeah, you like, like I need a definition for every single word, you know, in that sentence. And I know that's just like a rallying cry, you know, for for America to like lean into its forgetting. But it was really surreal for me to see tanks downtown again and have our mayor be like, eh, "This isn't really what we do." It's like, no, 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 this is exactly what you do. You've done this more than other things this year. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Like, and I remember, I remember tanks, like I was outside, I was outside this summer, like for real, for real. And so like part of that too is because there's some shit you can pull over on people. And I think it's important to be like, but I'm not one of those people. And to always kind of have that in the forefront because otherwise I think like, city officials will look to, to you as someone who is 
representing the city in some way and think that they can play you. But I, I was outside this summer. I saw like kids walking out of the library or I saw kids around the library, like seeing tanks out there and shit like that. Like I was there, you know what I mean? Like I saw, I saw elders getting pepper sprayed, walking home with groceries. You know what I mean? Like I saw this stuff. And so you can't play me with that. Like this isn't who we are because um, if I'm in the room, I, I'm, I'm going to ask some follow-up questions. <laughs> yeah. I have one more area, but it feels like a very rough transition. Um, <laughs> but let's just do it. I want to jump back to music for one second. Yeah. I've been really surprised just personally for me how the death of Doom has really just not left my brain and, and, and my ears for now, you know, almost three weeks. And it's pretty much the only thing I've listened to his, his music since that happened. And Damon, we've talked about it a little bit as someone that you had an appreciation for, but not a deep fandom or relationship to the music. And I kind of don't know who to memorialize this with. And and so I'm curious for you, just as the person who I, I, I sometimes look to to understand moments like this, what did his music mean to you? Or what has the response been in, in your body and in your ears? Yeah, I mean, it's a big loss. I'm someone who, I, I, on Twitter, I talked about this, about how KMD's Mr. Hood was the first rap album I understood as a concept album, mm. even when I didn't know what a concept album was. But it's been good for me to think about Doom and reflect further on this idea of withholding and what an artist gains when withholding is is a possibility. Withholding parts of the self, withholding parts of the story. You know, something that resonated with me is the fact that, you know, his family got time to grieve. You know, we're, we're such a reaction-focused culture, especially around our grief. And I, you know, I'm someone who traffics in this and understands this as well. And so when someone dies, we receive the news sometimes like right as loved ones receive the news or shortly thereafter. And then grief immediately becomes a universal communal act. Everyone is kind of braided together in various volumes of grief. I really appreciated that his family got a couple months to have that grief to themselves. It was so Doomian. Did he plan this? Like, um, you know, I'm going to pass on right. Halloween and like, we're not going to tell the world until New Year's Eve. Like that in itself was really emotional. Yeah, I think yeah. the way you named it is is probably more profound than I can get to it. But it was it was so meta and so to to the character, to the withholding. Yeah, yeah. Outside of just revisiting the music, uh, I've been thinking a lot about what an artist shares with the public and how to thoughtfully withhold. Mm. How's that process going as someone who's trying to build vulnerability and, and that like intimacy that you talked about? Yeah, I mean, for me, I think I've I've gotten very good at. Um, I think there's a difference between intimacy and vulnerability, mm. and bottomless exposure, internal <laughs> to the internal world. And so I think I've gotten pretty good at balancing it. You know, I feel like I share things that I am comfortable with and excited about and willing to share. And then there's a lot of stuff I keep private. I mean, a lot of stuff. I'm a fairly private person, I think, and I've become more private. I think in the past couple of years, but. And in some ways, like, I sometimes joke about my dog, Wendy, as being like an avatar for the parts of my personal life that I'd rather not share. It's just like, well, instead, here's Wendy again. You know, like, <laughs> I'm willing to share that I have a dog and you'll get to see a lot of my dog. But there are other parts that I'm really, really private about. Mm, that difference between like exposing yourself and like that there are ways to be vulnerable and intimate without having to sacrifice that autonomy over your own life is i think something that writers and artists and i you know even in in the craft of it like people really struggle with um yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i kind of that was my list you're really good at answering questions also <laughs> uh like oh, thanks. uh like concisely and brilliantly mm -hmm. This is the two-parter that we've been ending the whole notebook suite with, which is what's the best writing advice you've ever gotten and what's the worst writing advice you've ever gotten? Well, in some ways they're tied together. Well, no, well, the worst writing advice I've ever gotten is that you're not a writer unless you write every day, which I can't believe that that's still being preached in workshops or in any realm of, it's so ridiculous and yeah. it doesn't account for the fullness of a person's life if someone is a, a worker or a caretaker or a, or if they just don't want to fucking write every day you know 
if you embed that into yourself, that advice never accounts for how someone feels if they don't write every day. If you miss a day and then you feel devastated that you missed a day, you're less likely to write that next day because they're so wrapped up in your head. And then it creates a whole thing. So that's the worst advice I've ever gotten. The best advice I've ever gotten is in opposition to that, which is to reframe my ideas around productivity and to understand productivity is not only words on a page, but productivity is also anything that generates an excitement or makes a return to the page easier. Mm. Mm. I, I want to, I know that's a close, but I want to like kind of follow. What are some of your favorite or most reliable or grounded practices before you actually sit at the page? Well, Vivi Francis has this thing that she told me once about setting the table, like setting your very physical table. You know, my desk is a mess right now, so it's not very set. But the idea is that there's so much advice around how to enter a piece, but very little advice about how to exit and return to yourself. And so she has this thing about like sitting things on your desk that you love a bowl of candy you like, a photo that means something to you, these things. So that when you when you step back out of a piece, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm someone who has lived a life and is living a life outside of the person in that piece. So on my desk, I got some stuff. I got like crystals um, that I keep on my desk. Mm-hmm. I've got this thing my pal Stephanie got me in Mexico. Uh, so, I, you know, I got stuff on my desk that I kind of return to that when I step back, it's like, okay, I'm more than what I've produced today and I'm more than what I produce always. Mm. It's such a great connection to what we talked about with how to end a piece also and step away and be like, okay, and now we're done. <laughs> um, <laughs> right, done right. <laughs> and to that point- We're done and I got to get back to my life. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's do that. Um, where, can, <laughs> where, can, uh, where can folks find you and your work in the ways you want to be found? Um, I'm on like Twitter and Instagram at Neef Muhammad, N-I-F-M-U-H-A-M-M-A-D. And my website is abdurakib.com and you can find out everything there. And check out, uh, if I don't, I assume you want people to check out Object of Sound, which is this great podcast. Oh yeah, check out Object of Sound. I, I, I should be plugging Object of Sound. <laughs> uh, I'll do the plug Object of Sound's great. It's really good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for chopping it up with us and, and coming back on the show um, and, and sharing your thoughts on, on the page and, and more. Um, we're at Ergo Radio. I'm at Damon underscore AF. And I encourage folks, if you enjoyed this conversation, to go back and listen to our, our first talk with Anif. Sometimes I get worried about going back. Like, what did we say? But I think we did okay. <laughs> uh, that's the danger of the archive, I suppose. Yeah, um, I'm at Ergo Kiss. I'm at Damon underscore AF. And we'll be back on the line, continuing our notebook suite with the writers, uh, reshaping our culture for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. <laughs>